Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 17, Leviticus chapter 11, the third continuation. Last week, uh, we ended the section of Leviticus chapter 11 that discussed the subject of animals that were divinely declared clean and unclean for food. And further, we talked about this hopelessness of trying to determine just why certain animals were set apart as clean and others as unclean and that we would do best to simply accept the Lord's selections as His sovereign will. Now, due to the content of chapter 11 and its focus on Hebrew dietary rules, it's opened up this monumental, really, subject of ritual cleanliness and holiness. And we're going to continue that exploration today because it plays such a vital role in God's plan for His creation. And further, we really need to get a handle on this so that we can understand the statements about purity in the New Testament as it was meant to be understood. Now, we've discussed several aspects of uncleanness, but now I would just very briefly like to address this question. Is uncleanness the same thing as sin? In a word, no. But uncleanness can be a product of sin, yet that's not always the case. As we're going to see in following chapters of Leviticus, uncleanness is produced by a woman in her monthly cycle and by childbirth. There's certainly nothing sinful in that. Uncleanness is produced by contracting a skin disease, often incorrectly called leprosy in our Bibles. There is certainly nothing sinful in that, except that typically the scriptures tell us that these skin diseases are often an outward sign of a hidden and inner condition of sin. Now, I'd like to leave the matter of how uncleanness relates to sin for after a couple more chapters in Leviticus. For now, I just want you to go forward with the understanding that sin and uncleanness are not two words for the same thing. Do not equate sin and uncleanness in your minds. What is important is that Jehovah's holiness must be and will be protected and separated from all uncleanness. Now today I'd like to begin to address the matter that I'm sure most of you have been waiting for. Do the kosher eating laws still apply? And if they do, to whom do they apply? And do the scriptural dietary laws apply to Gentile Christian believers or to Messianic Jews or to anybody for that matter? Now, just like everything else we do in Torah class, we're not going to approach this in a simplistic yes or no manner because, as I hope you're beginning to see, This bottom line approach to God principles is Greek thinking and it runs completely counter to the design and thought style of the Bible. The truth is found in patterns that are set down beginning in Genesis and running all the way through Revelation. The truth is not found in a verse or two that we hope will just plainly state what it is we're seeking and give us a brief rationale behind behind it all. I'd say that there is a near unanimous agreement within the modern church that for a variety of reasons, the kosher eating laws of the Torah no longer apply. And the primary reason cited for that is the belief, the statement that Christ abolished the law. He abolished the Torah. of which the dietary laws are central. Therefore, whatever was ordained by God before the birth of Yeshua, we can just wave our hand and make all the scripture that preceded his advent disappear. 
We don't need to revisit that territory. I've demonstrated time and again here in Torah class that Yeshua in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17 through 20 personally stated unequivocally he did not come to abolish the law and that anyone who teaches that he did will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Rather, anyone who teaches and obeys the law will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It can't be any plainer. Since this is such a contentious matter, we're going to be examining. We're going to be examining it today and probably next week a bit as well. But in order to draw this lengthy subject of kosher eating towards some kind of a conclusion, it ends up with some sort of guideline that we can begin to work with in our lives. I'm going to take the unusual approach, at least unusual for me, of giving you my conclusion right up front and then demonstrating to you how it is I came to that conclusion. Yet, in all candor, I, before I do, I have to preface it by invoking the words of St. Paul as he was teaching the Corinthian believers on that very thorny subject of marriage and divorce. In paraphrase, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 7, Of what I'm about to tell you, I must confess, this is what I think. And I'm not entirely sure if it's from the Lord. Okay, So, take this for what it's worth. With that understanding, here we go. First, I am completely persuaded that Christ did not abolish the Torah. Okay. He, as he said, not even one jot, not one stroke. Okay. And therefore, it is incomprehensible that he could have abolished the sacrificial system and the dietary laws, which were part and parcel with the sacrificial system, and so central to the total body of holy instruction called Torah. Yet, undeniably, something has changed. A great transformation in how Torah operates took place upon his death, resurrection, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. And much of the laws of Torah are not in force because so many of those laws are completely dependent on the existence of a physical temple and a physical priesthood that currently don't exist. But they're going to in the near future. As concerns that sacrificial system, the great transformation was that Yeshua took every requirement of that system, the high priesthood, the rituals, and even the sacrifices themselves upon his own shoulders. But make no mistake, the spirit and purpose of the Torah's Sacrificial system is alive and well in that Christ's innocent and purest blood is still required every moment of every day to atone for our sins, just as an innocent animal's blood was required to atone for each sin committed before its coming. The spirit and purpose of Torah's ordained priesthood is also still alive and well in that Yeshua now wears the mantle of high priest and is our permanent mediator in heaven just as the descendants of Aaron used to be the human high priests and mediators for Israel. And we as his followers are now from a spiritual standpoint the common priests. By means of trust in Yeshua, we are set apart, sanctified, declared holy for service to Yehovah, just as certain designated families within the tribe of Levi were sanctified and set apart to officiate the sacrificial rituals and to serve Almighty God in a wide variety of ways in times past. Now, the Torah, which is a divine ideal that began as a purely heavenly and spiritual form, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, eventually became earthly and physical. It became a physical system of rules and rituals when Yehovah gave it to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. 
And then 1,300 years later, at the foot of the cross, that system of rule and ritual took on more aspects of its original heavenly nature. Sacrifice has never ceased to be required because as long as sin exists, sacrificial atonement must exist. But now the only sacrificial blood capable of producing atonement is Yeshua's. The priesthood has never ceased to be required because God has always established set-apart beings to carry out His will and to serve Him, be they angels or humans. But in our era, our current era, those set-apart and sanctified humans, the priesthood, are believers. They're you. This is your job. It's my job. And as concerns the dietary laws, kashrut, there are foods and there are other things that are still clean and some things that are unclean for us. Yet that too has in some way transformed. All right? And it is no longer to be taken in the purely physical, earthly ritualistic sense. It was at one time. Now it has returned at least partially in some way all right, to its spiritual and heavenly ideal. Still another dynamic is involved in this transformation. Because man is this strange combination of the physical and the spiritual. We're the only living creature that's like that. The manifestation of Torah ideals and principles is necessarily a combination of the spiritual and the physical, the invisible and the visible. And because in the current state of our universe, the clean and the unclean, the sinfully corrupted physical and the perfectly holy spiritual somehow live side by side. Yet the Torah still has a physical earthly nature to it that accompanies the spiritual nature. Now, I've explained this mystery to the best of my ability on a number of occasions by using this term, the reality of duality. That is, that we live in this sort of parallel universe whereby the spiritual and the physical exist simultaneously. It's not really a matter of one or the other as Greek rational thought wants us to have. The phenomenon of the reality of duality is not even explainable in scientific terms. It's only explainable in faith terms and in patterns. Patterns that have come from the very mind of Jehovah, not from the minds of men. So in a nutshell, though the dietary laws have not been abolished, yet something is different as a result of what Jesus did. And at least part of that something that he did is that trust in him trumps mindless, legalistic obedience to physical, earthly rituals, especially when it comes to salvation. Let me emphasize that. Faith overrides obedience when it comes to salvation. Yet that in no way says that obedience to Torah, which is the mind of God, is somehow obsolete. Our salvation is 100% dependent on trust that Yeshua's work on our behalf is the one and only thing that makes us acceptable to and at peace with Yehovah. Yet, and this is where the church has frankly fallen flat on its face, obedience to the Lord's Torah still matters. In fact, you know, the result of our salvation ought to be, and it's expected to be, our obedience to it. I mean, where is our gratitude to Jehovah if we think obedience to his eternal Torah is now passe? I mean, how is he our Lord and Master if we're obedient only to ourselves? It is true, thank God, that the condemnation, the curse that the Torah pronounces 
which is eternal separation from him, is now dead for those who trust in Christ. But never doubt that that same condemnation is alive and well for those who do not trust. Also never doubt, and this is made clear by all the apostles, that the blessing for those who are in Christ and who obey the Torah remains. Am I saying that those who determine to obey Torah will receive blessings above what those who are indeed saved but do not obey? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm telling you. All right. Is there blessing from following the dietary laws? Without question there is. It's a part of Torah. Okay. Ah. But following kosher eating rules, is that required to gain or even to maintain our salvation in Christ? Absolutely not. Okay. On the other hand, is following the dietary laws without first trusting Christ of any use? No. No use whatsoever. Okay. Obedience to Torah apart from trust in the Lord is worthless. Okay. Other than for your own personal gain of eternal life, what good is salvation apart from obedience to the one who saved you? Okay. Christ and Torah exist inseparable. Christ is the Word. The Word is the Torah. Christ is the Torah. Okay? Trust and obedience exist together. Inseparable. Trust gains salvation. Obedience gains blessing to those who trust. That's how it works. Okay? Now let me show you why I've come to those conclusions by looking at a couple of places in the New Testament where it's often taught that kosher eating was abolished, at least for Gentiles. Okay? Now let me remind everyone listening that this discussion we're having is all based around Leviticus chapter 11, which puts forth the dietary rules for Israel. So, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. This is the famous story of Peter and of the Roman army, army officer Cornelius and that sheet full of animals being lowered down from heaven in a vision. Acts chapter 10. Take, we're going to start at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now this happened three times. And immediately... The sheet was taken back up to heaven. Now, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking Simon, who was known as Peter, if he was staying there. Well, that's usually where the story is stopped in a sermon or a teaching, and a teacher or pastor then editorializes by saying, what could be more plain? God sends many animals to Peter in a vision. By all accounts, these were unclean, forbidden animals and tells him it's okay to slaughter and eat them. Therefore, it's obvious that God has removed the unclean label on these animals and it's the end of kosher eating. Well, not so fast. The first thing we should notice is that as of verse 17, Peter had come to no conclusions as to what this vision meant. He said, I don't know what this is. Okay. Several verses later, though, now, in Acts 10, in verse 34, Peter explains 
that while at first he thought this was about kosher eating, he now understands it was not. Because he says, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Oh, Peter says that the vision was about accepting men from every nation, by definition, Gentiles, who trusted in God into the fold of believers. Anyone, regardless of their ancestry, was to be eligible for salvation through Jesus Christ. As Peter says, no favoritism. So, according to the apostle who wrote the actual scripture of the book of Acts, we can throw out this story as an example of New Testament instruction to abolish the kosher laws because it was about favoritism of men. Peter says so. As Peter finally figured out, this this vision had nothing to do with food. Food was just the metaphor representing men because Peter went to sleep dreaming about the food. It says he was hungry and he fell asleep waiting for his meal. Okay? The unclean animals were a very familiar and well understood Jewish symbol of the spiritual principle of uncleanness and of the status in their minds of Gentiles. Okay? It had to do with the Jews shunning Gentiles. In this case, it was Peter's reluctance to want to bring the good news to the Gentile Cornelius because Jews regarded all Gentiles as unclean. Or as Jehovah said in the book of Acts, don't you call unclean what I'm telling you is clean. Okay. But let's take this another step. Exactly who is it that's being referred to here as clean who was formerly unclean? Gentile believers. Up to now, only someone who officially joined Israel physically. A foreigner a Gentile who gave up his former allegiances and officially became a Jew, only he would be considered by the Jewish people to be clean. But now in some mysterious divine way, some Gentiles have been joined to Israel and therefore been joined to Israel's covenants with God without physically and officially joining Israel. When we look back in time, We see that the mystery here is not that Gentiles were allowed to join Israel. And as a result, they were brought inside the camp. That was old news. Having been commanded by Jehovah from the very moment, he began creating a wholly separate people by means of Abraham and the covenant he made with him. Jehovah told Abraham that foreigners, Gentiles, were to be allowed to join Israel, provided they gave up their worship of false gods and declared allegiance to the God of Israel, and as a ceremonial matter, were circumcised. Now, rather, the mystery of all this is that Gentile believers did not have to join Israel physically, yet somehow they became part of Israel and part of their covenants. For for, for a Jew... This meant that the Gentile believer did not have to have a circumcision. And they did not have to come under control of the Jewish civil and religious authorities. The foreigners also did not have to give up their status as Gentiles and instead become Jews. But on another level, a spiritual level, Gentiles did become part of Israel. And and this is the confusing part. How is this possible? And how can this be? To most Jews, what I just said to you is just double talk. A Jew on the one hand, but not on the other? Paul does his best to explain how this can be. But it's something that I don't think he even fully grasped. I don't think he could fully express it as well as he would have liked to. Turn your Bibles to Romans 2. Romans 2. Because it's here that Paul addresses this exact issue. Now I'm going to start reading at 
verse 25 of chapter 2 of Romans and go to the end of that chapter. Short segment. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says, but if you are a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who've had a Brit Milah circumcision ceremony and have Torah written out, but you violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart. Spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. I mean, my heart just cries out in joy because of these verses. But it also cries out in pain because most of the church has thrown this precious message right into the waste bin. Okay. We're only going to spend a minute with this, though I'd love to spend a day. Look at verse 27. It's speaking to the one who is not circumcised physically. Who is that? Almost everybody in this room. Gentiles. Okay. Now, immediately, following those words, there is a qualification about the uncircumcised one, the Gentile believer. And the qualification is, and yet, obeys the law. Which is better translated, and yet obeys the Torah. Hmm. A Gentile... Specifically a believer, because that's what the context is here. A Gentile believer who yet obeys the law. Then verse 28 and 29 tells us this. Under this transformation, this mystery brought about by Christ, a man is not a Jew just because he has a small flap of skin removed from his male organ. Okay. No, a man must have an inward change in his heart, his mind. All right. As a work of the Holy Spirit, not of himself, not of other men. And if we stop right there with Paul's statement, we see nothing but condemnation for the Jewish people. Okay. We can even wonder if the church has indeed replaced the Jews as God people, as God's people, because now the true Jew, the true Israelite, is the one who has the Holy Spirit in him, a believer in Yeshua. Jews who won't accept the Messiah Yeshua are excluded. But as I've cautioned you many times, do not pay much attention to chapter and verse marks. These were only added by scholars much later after the scriptures were written as a convenience for study. Okay. So we find that this discussion by Paul just continues right out of Romans 2, right on into Romans 3. And Paul, being a good, trained rabbi, sets up the straw man. That is, he anticipates the argument he's about to get. Right? And so rhetorically asks the question that a reasonable person, particularly a reasonable Jew would ask. And then he proceeds to answer that question. And here he does it in Romans 3. Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has a Jew? What is the value then of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. If some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone were a liar. As the Tanakh says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you're put on trial. Now we're going to go look at another chapter in Romans that gives even more depth to this. 
But before we go there, let me point out another important dynamic that's being brought to light. And it's this. The true Israel, or the Israel of God, that Paul speaks of in Galatians 6, is a spiritual concept. Or better yet, the spiritual and heavenly reality. The earthly Israel consists of humans and tents and animals and a tabernacle and rituals and ceremonies. And it's but the imperfect physical shadow of the true spiritual ideal of Israel. Paul is explaining that all who trust God and accept his son Yeshua as Lord and Savior are expressing the spiritual ideal of Israel. And what scripture plainly tells us is that the very first people to accept the spiritual ideal of true Israel were, naturally, Israelites. Thousands of Hebrews accepted this reality, but sadly most did not. But, and here's the big question, does that mean that physical Israel and therefore physical Israelites, Jews, do they no longer exist? Or are no longer Jehovah's specially chosen people? Does this mean that with the advent of Jesus Christ has the spiritual ideal of Israel now replaced physical Israel and physical Israelites? Has the distinction between physical Israel and everybody else that God first established with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then his sons and their heirs become dissolved and abolished? Or does a Gentile mystically transform into a flesh and blood physical Jew, kind of like a caterpillar morphing into a butterfly when he accepts Christ? The answer to all of these questions is an emphatic no. Paul says in the first few verses of Romans 3 that the physical distinction between Jew and Gentile remains. There are physical Jews, there are physical Gentiles, and it's going to remain that way. Being a physical Jew does have its advantages, among which is the awesome duty and privilege to keep and protect the very word of God that they were given at the foot of Mount Sinai. So a Gentile becoming a true Jew is a spiritual matter. It expresses a real, living, spiritual reality. But physical Jews also have to accept the reality of the true spiritual Israel in order to be a part of it. And the only way this happens is exactly the same way it happens for Gentiles. Trust in Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. Those Jews who do not accept this spiritual reality go right on being Jews, physical Jews, and they continue being a part of physical, earthly Israel, but they don't become part of the true, spiritual, ideal Israel. Now here's the thing that's so hard for us that have grown up in a traditional church to accept. Okay. As Christians, we have become spiritual Israelites. Or as Paul says, true Jews. This is not how somehow derived from Scripture. It's what Paul says. We become part of heavenly, true, ideal Israel. This is a critical ingredient to our discussion of kosher eating. Because it says that whether we're born a physical Jew or a a physical Gentile, once we trust in Christ, we now all become one new man. And And we become part of an entity called true spiritual Israel. Therefore, it cannot be so that believing Jews have a different set of rules than believing Gentiles. It cannot be so that believing Jews are obligated to keep kosher, but believing Gentiles are not. What is so for one must be so for the other. Now let's read Romans 11. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11.
to me, this is one of the watershed scriptures in all the New Testament. Romans chapter 11. We're going to read from <clears throat> verses 13 through 26. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I might provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the whole world, what will accepting him mean? It'll be like life from the dead. Now, if the hala offered his first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of those branches were broken off and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and you become equal shares in the rich root of that olive tree, then don't boast as though you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember... You're not supporting the root. Root's supporting you. Okay. So you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God didn't spare those natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's severity and his kindness. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness towards you. Provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, can be grafted in. Because God's able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be back, grafted back in to their own olive tree? Okay, Paul says we Gentiles are grafted into Israel, the spiritual Israel olive tree, which represents the ideal Israel, the ideal representation of Israel. Those physical Israelites who did not trust God, did not trust that Yeshua is his son who was sent to redeem us, were those branches broken off of that olive tree, broken off of true spiritual Israel, not broken off of physical Israel. Jews who to this day do not believe Jesus is their Messiah are alive and well and they're still Jews. All right? They're still physical Israel. Paul is using the olive tree as but a standard metaphor for a spiritual reality, that of a spiritual Israel. The olive tree is not a Gentile tree. It's an Israelite tree. Therefore, as Paul says, we shouldn't be brag about being grafted into that spiritual olive tree nor imagine that we know more than we do. Because God had a reason for going about these things. And what was that reason? As it says in verse 26, so that all Israel will be saved. Part of the reason Gentiles were saved is so physical Israel could be saved. Paul is surely right. We Gentiles have every reason to be humble and none to be proud. So we cannot escape the fact that you, me, all believers are joined to Israel. Spiritual Israel. Don't want to be joined to Israel? Too bad. You became joined to Israel the instant you accepted the Jewish Messiah. There is not there will never be a Gentile Messiah for you. Okay. Oh, there's going to be a fake one in the near future. And he may well be a Gentile. He could also be a Jew. And he will claim to be a Messiah. We call him the Antichrist. So, with that as the context for our current condition as Gentile and Jewish believers 
that we are together, spiritual Israelites brought into this condition by faith in our Jewish Messiah. Now let's move forward and see what Jesus himself had to say about eating and about what is clean and what is unclean. Open your Bibles to the book of Mark. Chapter 7. Book of Mark, chapter 7. Now I'm going to start reading at verse 14, which is where every sermon you'll ever hear on this subject starts. Mark 7, verse 14. Then Yeshua called the people to him again outside and said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand this. There is nothing outside a person which by going into him can make him unclean. Rather, it is the things that come out of a person which make, him, which make a person unclean. When he had left the people and entered the house, his Talmudim, his disciples, asked him about this parable. He replied to them, so, so you too are without understanding? Don't you see that nothing going into a person from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach. It passes out into the latrine. Parentheses. Thus he declared all foods ritually clean. It's what comes out of a person, he went on, that makes him unclean. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes forth wicked thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, indecency, envy, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these wicked things come from within, and that's what makes a person unclean. Now, without doubt, a casual reading makes this sound like exactly what we've been told by our leaders since we were children. That Jesus says that there are no longer clean and unclean foods or unclean and clean anything else for that matter. The kosher eating is ended. Well, that's what happens when you take things out of context. Okay? And when Bible translators editorialize. For instance, in verse 19, if you look at your Bibles, most Bibles will put a parenthesis around the words, and thus he declared all foods clean. Some Bibles have that, all right? Some don't, and I'll tell you why that is. Because those words never existed in Scripture. Right? They were added as an editorial comment in the medieval times by theologians. That's why they're in a parenthesis. Jesus didn't speak in parenthesis. Okay? If you have a King James Version, for instance, you won't even find that in there. Okay? Those words are nothing more than a footnote that was put in by the editor put smack in the center of Scripture. And by the way, there's no Bible scholar that will disagree with me on that. That's just known. It's a simple fact. Guess what? They were wrong. And it simply reflected their ignorance or frankly disdain of all things Jewish. Rather, Jesus simply says that food is digested and then eliminated human dung, as if the Pharisees didn't know that. All right. Further, as verse 17 makes clear, Jesus spoke this as a what? A parable. Not literal. In other words, Yeshua was using metaphor and illustration to demonstrate a pattern and to make a point. That is the definition of a parable. Okay? He makes no other judgment as regards the food itself. Now, as an example of how parables work, we're all familiar, aren't we, with the one about the seed being scattered on the hard ground, the fertile ground, and the rocky ground. All right? That's a good one. And about how at times we need to allow the tares, the weeds, to grow up alongside the, the wheat. Otherwise, if we pulled out the weeds, their roots might be all entangled with the wheat, and we'd harm the wheat. Okay. Now, does anybody honestly think that in that parable, Jesus was giving a lesson on agriculture? Okay. Was Jesus being a farming expert and explained how is the very best way to grow good crops? Of course not. Right. He was using wheat and tares and various soil types as an analogy and an illustration, as metaphors on how the various kinds of people in the world will receive the good news of the gospel. And then what happens to some of them after they do accept it? It's the same thing here in Mark. 
as it is with all of Jesus' parables. He wasn't abolishing anything. He certainly was not abolishing the concept of clean and unclean. So go back to your Bibles now. Now we're going to back up a few verses. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 7. These verses that are hardly ever read. Right? The verses that come just before what we just read. The Pharisees and some of the Torah teachers who had come from Jerusalem gathered together with Yeshua and saw that some of his disciples ate with ritually unclean hands. That is, without doing natyat yadayim. Because the Pharisees and indeed all the Judeans holding fast to the tradition of the elders do not eat unless they have given their hands a ceremonial washing. Also, when they come up from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've rinsed their hands up to the wrist and they adhere to many other traditions such as washing cups, pots, and bronze vessels. Continuing, the Pharisees and the Torah teachers asked him, Why don't your disciples live in accordance with the traditions, but instead eat with ritually unclean hands? Yeshua answered them, Yeshayahu, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is useless, because they teach man-made rules, as if they were doctrines. You depart from God's command and hold on to human traditions. Indeed, he said to them, you have made a fine art out of departing from God's command in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say, if someone says to his father or mother, I have promised his korban, a gift to God, okay, what I might have used to help you, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, with your tradition, which you have handed down to you, you nullify the word of God, and you do other things like this. Then, of course, verse start 14 continues with, listen to me, nothing that goes into you that makes you unclean. What was the subject? Unwashed hands. Here we discover the issue was entire conversation had nothing to do with clean and unclean foods. Okay. Rather, it had to do with the extensive list of traditional purity laws, in this case, ritual hand washing. Which, as he rather angrily points out, isn't even scriptural. It's a man-made tradition. According to Jewish tradition, if a Hebrew didn't go through a ritual hand-washing before he ate, he would then defile his otherwise kosher, clean food. His perfectly acceptable food became unclean because he touched it with unclean hands. Why, Jesus, do your disciples eat with unclean hands? To this, Jesus says nonsense. Okay? So we can dispose of another story, erroneously given as an example of kosher eating, because kosher eating isn't even the topic. Hand washing is the topic. Traditions of the elders is the topic, and it's all being shot down by Jesus. Now, for those among us who generally advocate kosher eating as a way Believers ought to follow. You're probably feeling pretty good right about now. And for those who don't, I suspect you're not. But let me warn you, it's not quite that easy. And I promise you we won't end the topic here. But I do need to end for tonight. And I'd like to close with this thought. The reason that God employed the whole clean and unclean pattern is because it follows a very long established God pattern that is one of the greatest demonstrations of the Lord's governing dynamic of his dividing, electing, and separating the things of this world. The Lord states in Leviticus 11.47 that the reason for his detailed laws on clean and unclean animals is to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. That is, by his defining of what is clean and what is unclean, his people will know the difference and avoid 
the unclean. They don't have to guess. The Lord is all about separating. Satan is all about putting everything back into one pile and eliminating distinctions. The Lord is about drawing distinctions between right and wrong, good and evil, holy and unholy, heterosexual and homosexual, saved and unsaved, male and female. The Lord established nations with distinctive languages. He divided and separated them with boundaries and borders so that he could use them and so that he could judge them nation by nation. Satan is all about removing separations and distinctions. Right and wrong are relative. Good and evil evolves with time. No one is chosen by God. Everybody's the same. All sexuality is okay. There is no difference between the sexes and the roles and the duties of each sect, and they certainly shouldn't be distinct. Borders with borders between nations should be erased and all people should become as one doesn't that sound wonderful God says that his people are to be holy and therefore they are to avoid the things he has declared not clean Satan says there is no such thing as holy there certainly is no such thing as unclean everyone and everything is equal and the same there is no distinctions Where we have to be very careful, though, in drawing up our distinctions is that we get them from the Holy Scripture and we don't devise them ourselves. That's the problem. When we do choose our own distinctions, we get bigotry, racial and ethnic oppression, mistreatment of women and minorities, all sorts of ugly results. The world is in the process of doing everything it can to put the Tower of Babel back together again. We're told from our government and our news sources, and now even many within the church and synagogue authorities, that God's intent is that all distinctions are to end on earth because that is true love. That's a lie. That uncleanness is abolished is also not true. We're going to continue exploring this very challenging yet critical uh, subject next week.